welcome to the 24th episode of the Ocean Decade Show, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gales, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the ocean decade. So not hello from COP27, <laughs> but I'm still jet lagged from my trip from Egypt to the East Coast of the US to Washington, DC. So I think it still counts. So this is a very special two-part episode, um, which we've never done before, and I'm really excited about that. You all know I love trying new things. So in this two-part episode, this first part will be a bit of a monologue for me talking about my experiences, my very first COP, going to COP27, um, the Conference of the Parties, if you if you weren't aware what that was, um, the Paris Agreement, which was signed uh, back in 2015, uh, countries meet every year to reassess their climate ambitions. Um, last year it was in Glasgow, Scotland. This year it was in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, which is a small, small-ish, you know, resort town uh, on the Red Sea in Egypt, uh, which you wouldn't have thought that would be the first location for a cop, and it <laughs> was an odd location for a cop, and I'll get there. Um, but yeah, so we'll, I'll talk a little bit about my experience uh, with cop this year, and then you will have a part two of this episode that where I get to speak to uh, some other Ocean Decade people who are at COP as well um, to get to kind of give that really full experience. Because I was there specifically uh, through my work with the Aspen Institute and our shipping decarbonization initiative. Um, so I'm really excited about the chance to touch a little bit on that, but then get to hear other people's perspectives uh, on this COP. So really exciting. Um, so I'll give you my thoughts on Charm itself, <laughs> the blue zone, the green zone, um, kind of everything in in between. Um, yeah, so Charm El Sheikh is a really interesting, <laughs> interesting place. Apparently a lot of what is there now didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, and it kind of felt like a ghost town when we were there, um, a bit of a post-apocalyptic Las Vegas is how I described it. There are all these lights and glittering things, but none of them was were on. Um, I think that the the government probably told locals to stay home and to focus on, you know, there wouldn't the, the day we got there was the day that President Biden got there. So <laughs> that makes sense, I think, too, with the extra security. Um, and the day we ended up leaving, because we stayed through the second week of COP and left uh, after the last day, we started to see tourists and like local people there again and could understand kind of the charm of this place and the Red Sea is gorgeous and they have all these great activities in Mount Sinai in the background. It's it's incredible. But during the week we were there, it felt very empty, except for, you know, us and thirty thousand of our friends who flew in from around the world to um to do this uh climate conference. And of course there's the official negotiations which happen, which is kind of the main part of the show. Uh, which happens in the blue zone. But then in the blue zone, there's also all of these side events that pop up as well, which are also really important, but it can kind of feel like a circus <laughs> a little bit, a big climate circus, the whole climate world coming together to, you know, kind of show off and say what they do. There's a lot of cool announcements. The pavilions all kind of try to one up each other. Um, the coolest one was probably the Egyptian pavilion, which had literal marble on the, on the floors and on the walls. Um, the Australian pavilion had the best coffee. The line was always way too long. I couldn't even get there. Um, the resilience hub had great coffee as well though, too. So that was, and it, you know, Egypt I've heard had a great 
has a great coffee and tea culture. And unfortunately I didn't experience that anywhere in the, in the blue zone itself. So the blue zone was, is the official place where delegates go, where there's, um, you know, side events, but the hardest part about going to cop is getting a pass for that blue zone. The process to get your organization affiliated takes about a year and a half or, and then you're scrambling at the last minute, you look at someone's badge and they say, it says what they're affiliated with. And it might not be their actual organization because people get badges from somewhere else. Um, that, uh, my friend and a friend of the ocean decade, David Edis, um, I ran into him while running around. Cause that's what happens at these big conferences and his past said Tongo. <laughs> and I told him he did not look Tonganese, but, uh, that's, kind of how it goes. There's this trading of things, but I was luckily able to go affiliated with the Aspen Institute. Um, and a lot of our work on, on green shipping and that all happened in the blue zone, which was really amazing. Uh, and then the complement to the blue zone is the green zone, which if you have a blue zone pass, you can go into the green zone and do all of that. Um, and there were some sessions in there. It was kind of this weird, oasis that was built with by the time I got there all the nice flowers they had planted had died though because it's Egypt and it is hot um but what I found <laughs> there which is funny they had the best uh shopping of the whole time that I was there I saw because they had all these great local Egyptian artisans women-owned businesses things so I got all my Christmas shopping done early which is fabulous um and just some really unique stuff and got to you know speak to locals which I hadn't really gotten to do you get in this cop bubble and you go from your hotel to you get on the little shuttle to go to the blue zone so it was really fantastic to get to talk to you know men and women who live in this area and who you know do these great artisans and just so different from the world of cop and so getting to kind of talk to them about what we do and learn what they do was really was really exciting um so i mentioned that we were there for some of our work with the cargo owners for zero emission vessels initiative, COZEV. Um, and there was so much stuff on green shipping and shipping decarbonization at COP this year, which was really exciting, probably the most ever. And it was dispersed kind of throughout the two weeks. Some of the stuff was on transport day, some was on ocean day, some was on decarbonization day. Um, probably one of the highlights, though, was the fact that President Biden in his remarks mentioned green shipping, which is a huge deal. The U.S. is the world's biggest importer, but we don't uh, do a lot of actual shipping here. But the U.S. is really a leader in this space and is uh, positioned to become even more of a leader. So it was really fantastic hearing, you know, the, the president of the United States talk about that. So I had tickets to go see his speech, but my flight got in too late to get to go see him. So I'm so bummed. I also thought it was ironic that, you know, I live a few miles away from where <laughs> the president lives, but... I was then going to see him, you know, 7,000, 8,000 miles away from home or something like that in this small Egyptian resort town. Not so small, though. There's so many resorts. Um, so that was really exciting uh, to get to have that happen. We had a few side events. We had some sessions uh, that happened. We had some uh, uh, papers that came out. It was really great to get to bring shipping to COP and get to meet all of these colleagues who some of who I've met before, some of who I haven't, because uh, we've all been working in the COVID world the past few years. So really exciting, built on the stuff that happened at COP26 with green shipping. And I think we're only going to go uh, bigger and better for towards COP28 in 
Dubai next year, which, yeah, that was another one of the zones that was incredible <laughs> as the future host. You know, it's kind of like how at the Olympics that who is ever taking the torch next tries to kind of show up and say, hey, look, we're going to do a great job at this next year. And uh, Dubai definitely, <laughs> definitely did that. UAE definitely did that. Um, so I mentioned a little bit ago that there's, you know, the official negotiations that happen. And so there's all sorts of great um, reports online about this, and you've probably seen some highlights, but kind of the three big things in the ocean climate realm that I thought were really interesting was that you've probably heard that there's this landmark decision to establish a loss and damage fund. So historically, the countries who have polluted the most, <laughs> you know, the developed countries of this world have contributed most to climate change, but then it's the countries who have contributed the least who are suffering and who do not have the financial, political, capabilities in order to help mitigate and adapt climate change. So the fact that this loss and damage fund will be established, there's still a long way to go, but getting developed countries to yes on that was not an easy task. So that's really exciting that, you know, these conferences afterwards, you can see a lot of really bad <laughs> takes, not bad takes, but just really negative about we didn't get this and we didn't get this. And climate is, if, if you're looking for wins all the time in climate, you're never going to get it. It's it's hard, it's disappointing, but we move forward one inch at a time. And I think that that was a few inches moved forward or a few centimeters <laughs> for our my international contingent. Um, the other thing that this COP had for the first time was it included a children and youth pavilion, which was the most colorful, exciting place. Someone painted a live mural there while we were there, which was really fantastic. Um, and in the declaration, the ocean was identified in the final declaration in a dedicated subsection for the very first time. So officially, ocean is in the climate discussions, which you would have thought that it already would have been in there <laughs> because of how much we we in the ocean world understand those interconnections, but it hadn't been in there yet. So it's really exciting to see that ocean is now firmly on the climate agenda. Uh, the official decision said that countries are, quote, encouraged to consider ocean climate-based action in their national climate goals, unquote, uh, really recognizing the, the key role of the ocean in these nationally determined contributions, NDCs, if you've heard of them. Um, that can be one of our acronyms of the, <laughs> of the show. I think COP is the main one, Conference of the Parties, um, but NDCs as well. So that's really exciting. Um, and so the COP27 adoption plan titled the Sharm el-Sheikh Implementation Plan calls for continuation to of the ocean and climate change dialogue. So I think this sets us up, like I said, really well. Shipping is set up well for COP28, but I think ocean in general is set up really well for COP28 as well. So we'll see more and more opportunities for ocean-based NDCs. Um, and it, that's just what we need. You know, we need to think about this climate issue holistically, and we understand the important role of the ocean. And that's something that the Ocean Decade, I think, can really help foster. Um, so to read more about ocean-specific conclusions, there are all sorts of summaries, like I said, out there. I found a great one at ocean-climate.org um, that it's something that uh, a colleague at Hui had shared, and so I thought it was really interesting. So uh, I can put the link in the in the description of this podcast, and then take a take a read and see what else you see out there. Uh, another bit that I'll touch on here, but then. Part two, like I said, of this podcast, we'll, we'll talk about it as well. There was an ocean pavilion for the very first time. Again, something that you would have thought would have existed in the past. Um, so in addition to having pavilions for individual countries, you know, US, Canada, they're right next to each other. We waved at each other 
from across our <laughs> across our borders. Um, but there are also pavilions for for themes. Like I said, the Resilience Hub had great coffee. Um, there are kind of bigger themes like that. UN organizations have them. But the Ocean Pavilion was really a central spot for ocean activities at COP, which I think is good and bad, right? The good and bad part about that is that there's a dedicated space, so you know where to go. I went there, and every time I was there, I'd run into ocean friends <laughs> that I had never seen in person or hadn't seen in a long time. I happened to, well, I planned to run into uh, one of my good friends from undergrad, uh, Anella Akioni, who's now a PhD student at Scripps. Uh, we studied abroad together years ago. I haven't seen her since we graduated from University of San Diego almost 10 years ago now, which uh, shows my age a little bit. But we got to see each other and chat about the ocean work that we're doing. And that's what the Ocean Pavilion is great at doing. I also think those sorts of things can be restrictive because unless you care about the ocean and know about the ocean, you don't go to these events, right? Um, so we found the same thing with with shipping. We uh, The shipping events were kind of all over. And you normally saw only shipping people, but then sometimes you didn't because people were already at that pavilion for something else. And so they didn't know. And so they'd stay and listen. Um and so I think the Ocean Pavilion is a really important step forward. Uh, we're just going to have to figure out, too, how to make sure that people care and are integrated. It was a beautiful space. Um, friendly people, they helped me in a bind with some printing <laughs> that needed to happen, which is wonderful about the ocean community. Um, it was led by a group of the world's leading ocean science and philanthropic organizations, including Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, HUI, like I had mentioned earlier. Uh, the Ocean Pavilion was meant to represent the first time the ocean has been a singular focus of a pavilion, like I said, inside this central blue zone. It hosted approximately 60 sessions over the two-week period, which was incredible. And if you look up Ocean Pavilion COP27, you'll be able to find some recordings from that, which is really exciting. I was able to sit in on a few sessions and they were super interesting. Topics and discussions highlighted the crucial importance of the ocean to Earth's climate and to efforts to mitigate the effects of climate change in the safest, most effective ways science can offer. So it was a beautiful space. I'm really excited that there was an Ocean Pavilion there and can't wait to see you know, what happens next year. This is something that um, can only be good for the ocean decade going forward. And so in part two of what this <laughs> podcast is going to be, I'm going to speak to um, people who had events in the Ocean Pavilion and people associated with the Ocean Decade and how it's kind of importantly intertwined within there that, um, you know, we're in at the end of, incredibly, you know, this second year of the Ocean Decade. And so if we think about the Ocean Pavilion as a way to kind of benchmark uh, Ocean Decade activities going forward, that can be really exciting. I saw so many of the the sessions that I was at, um, at the Ocean Pavilion, they had, you know, their little Ocean Decade logo in one of the corners of their PowerPoints that showed that whatever project they were talking about was affiliated with the Ocean Decade. Um, it was fantastic in order to, you know, really understand how broad the Ocean Decade has reached across the ocean community. Um, I think there's still a long way to go because, you know, Hui and Scripps are big established U.S. entities that have the time, money, capacity to be able to engage in the ocean decade. So I still think that there's a lot of capacity building that we need to do uh, over the course of the next eight-ish years. But it was really exciting to see how much it had pervaded across the 
the different things that were talked about at the Ocean Pavilion, which is really exciting. Um, yeah, so COP was weird and, <laughs> and incredible. It was on the Red Sea. It was a great connection to the ocean. We were right near the Suez Canal, which was great connection for my shipping work. Um, but like I said, I only experienced it through a very specific lens. I, <laughs> You run around from these different pavilions from space to space, put your mask on and off as you go out in and outside the building. Um, just, it was crazy long lines for food and bathrooms. And I apparently got there after, um, they had already started putting up, they'd put up signs, which didn't exist at the start. So that would have been even more challenging than it was to find your way around the blue zone. But like I said, I experienced COP through a very specific shipping focused lens and was able to learn more about some of the ocean stuff that happened. But, um, mine is just one of the perspectives. So that's why I was really excited to do this very first ever two-part, uh, podcast episode, uh, in order to share other perspectives and different perspectives and get a more holistic picture of COP. Um, and it's also a little bit of a teaser, you know, uh, <laughs> never had a cliffhanger episode before. And so that's really exciting too, to get to chat about that. Um, and the people that I'll be speaking to for this next episode, uh, one of the focuses, I'm not going to give too much away because it's, uh, it's exciting, but one of the focuses that the organizers of COP this year put that the Egyptian government put on was this was Africa COP, Africa's COP, you know, the very first COP that took place in Africa. Um, I agree that Egypt is geographically in Africa. Does it always have, you know, the most African feel, you know, if you try to describe a single event in terms of a whole continent, that can be a little difficult. I think the loss and damage fund hits that kind of need for the developing world of which Africa is a large part in order to move forward. But, um, you know, the description of this cop as Africa cop kind of fell short in some ways, but my next guests on part two of this podcast will hopefully have uh, a little bit more to share about some of the work that the ocean decade is doing in Africa, why they think it's so important to work there and some of their experiences from COP and what they thought, you know, of the Africa COP and, and what does that mean to them? And did it live up to the expectations? And where do we need to go from here for next year's COP in terms of ocean work in Africa? Um, everything like that. So it's, it's crazy. These will be our last episodes the year. Um, we're coming up on the end of two years of the Ocean Decade show itself, which is <laughs> incredible that this podcast was an idea I had back when I was a Canals fellow and have been able to put out an episode a month, which is crazy. <laughs> you know, when I was a, when I was a fellow and uh, it was much, much easier than working full time, but I've been really proud of the fact that we've been able to put out great diverse episodes month after month. Um, with really interesting guests and people um, to tell the stories of this decade. And I know that there are so many more stories to tell. Um, and so one call I wanted to give out at the, the end of the year is that uh, if you are doing cool stuff with the Ocean Decade and you listen to this podcast, please reach out. Um, I'd love to be able to feature interesting people. I'm going to continue to experiment with how we tell stories on this podcast, you know, do we continue to do cool two-parters like this? Is it shorter episodes? Do you like longer episodes that I'd really love to understand some feedback of, you know, how this is working and how you want to continue to get information from this podcast going forward? Um, do I make too many bad jokes? I can't really change much about that because that's just 
innately in my personality. So if that's one of your complaints, you can write it down, but I probably won't listen to that one. Um, so I'd love some, some feedback and I'd love to tell your story. You know, if you're doing amazing work with the ocean decade, please reach out. Um, probably the easiest way is, uh, via Twitter, if it still exists <laughs> at the time at Twitter Taylor, um, or through the coastal news today, folks, and they can, uh, get, get you in touch with me. Um, so I'm going to sign off here for part one of the podcast. I hope you all are excited about part two, like I am and enjoy this kind of two-parter part of it. So I wonder, you know, I do at the very beginning, my introductions, episode 24, I should have said episode 24, part one, because the next is going to be episode 24, part two. So I don't really consider it a separate episode. It's all part of this story of, of cop, um, which, you know, we are land-based creatures and COP has focused on the land for a long time, but I really think that we're integrating ocean into it in a way that we never have before. You know, Glasgow is uh, coastal, Sharm El Sheikh is coastal, uh, next year's one in Dubai is, uh, it's also a, an ocean country. Is Dubai coastal? It is. It's on the south southeast coast of the Persian Gulf. So see, there we go. We have all of these um, coastal and ocean COPs that have happened and that are coming up. And so I think that the role of the ocean is just going to continue to grow in importance as these cops go on. And that's in part because of dedicated people like you who care about the ocean and who understand its important role in the climate. So you will hear from me all again very soon. And I hope you enjoyed this part one and I will see you in part two.